Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. everybody, and welcome back to the Story of Nowhere podcast. I trust you've all offered Jesus your happiest how-do-you-do and welcome back over this past weekend, and I hope you enjoyed yourselves. As always, I am your host, Daniel McCarthy. Only today, actually, I'm not your host. In the show you're about to hear, I'm actually the interviewee, but I'll tell you all about that in just a second. First, I just want to say that I hope you've all enjoyed what I've put out since I last spoke to you directly. Namely, the episode on Bernaysian propaganda, Navigating Dystopia with Stefan Versteppen, and, in case you missed it, They Say Episode 3, in which Alice and I really dig into the neocons. So be sure to check that one out over at storyofnowhere.com slash they say 3 if you're at all concerned with fascism and warfare and genocide, etc. And you may have noticed that I did not post episode 6 of In Pursuit of Utopia to my podcast feed. I know I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. In Pursuit of Utopia being freely available on my podcast stream was never going to be a permanent thing. I was doing this just as I got the podcast started in order to keep content coming out regularly. But now that I feel more confident in my ability to more frequently put out original material, The age of free in pursuit of utopia is drawing to a close. So, that doesn't mean it's going away permanently. It just means that all of the episodes that are currently on the feed, as well as all the remaining episodes which have not been put on the feed, will be relegated to some sort of bonus content plan, which I haven't quite figured out yet, but I'm working on it. And until I get it all sorted out, the episodes that I have already released will remain on the feed. Just know that at any given point, they may suddenly vanish. So get your kicks while you can. And as for upcoming shows, I've actually got a lot of things planned. I'm going to be doing a show soon on the political spectrum, like the left-right thing. Because while I think it's oversimplified and overgeneralized in sort of mainstream media, I also happen to think that pretty much everybody in the alternative media also gets their analysis of it wrong. At least... I should say uh, that my analysis of the left-right spectrum is different from most people, even including people who are in the alternative media. And I really think that digging into this idea of the political spectrum might help us better understand political attitudes in the present day, and also identify the differences, both drastic and subtle, between the different Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment utopian visions in which our world finds itself engulfed. So that'll be fun. And also, while I'm on the Enlightenment train, 
I'm also planning an episode on agrarian justice, which is a really interesting pamphlet by Thomas Paine. So I would recommend everyone go check that out, read it on your own. It's available for free online, and I'll be doing a show on that relatively soon. And as I also mentioned on an earlier episode, I'm working on a really, 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 really big project, which I'm still going to keep under wraps for now, but just know that there's a pretty big uh, something-such coming up. But uh, don't worry about that right now. So that'll do it for the announcements, and now let me tell you about the show you're actually about to hear today. This is an appearance I had on Kevin Cole's Unity of the Polis podcast, and is the first part of a mini-series we're doing on the ancient Greek philosopher Isocrates. We talk all about him in the episode, so there's no sense in me introducing him to you now. But one thing that I do want to introduce to you is a concept that we discuss that originated with the Canadian thinker Marshall McLuhan, and that idea is the medium is the message. The whole episode is kind of built on top of that concept. Essentially, Marshall McLuhan put forth this idea back in the 60s that a medium is actually more important in communicating than the actual content being communicated. In other words, it's not so much about what information you take in, it's about how you take that information in. And the example that McLuhan used, the sort of quintessential example of this medium is the message idea at play, is the 1960 presidential debate between John Kennedy and Richard Nixon. The majority of people who listened to that debate over the radio concluded that Richard Nixon had won. He had better points, he had better arguments, and he sounded more experienced. However, this was also the very first ever televised presidential debate and the majority of people who watched it concluded that John Kennedy won. He looked calm, he looked cool, he looked collected, whereas Nixon was fidgeting around, he looked sweaty, he didn't look as good as Kennedy. So even though both the radio audience and the TV audience both heard the same arguments and the same substance, they both came away with totally different conclusions about who actually won the debate. And so the idea that the medium is the message is essentially... The idea that how you consume information is actually going to change the way you value that information and the conclusions you draw from it. So we've all heard this idea of like technology being neutral and it's just all about how you apply it. Well, McLuhan thought that was bullshit. He thought that every single different technology, every medium had implicit effects on our values and our attitudes that oftentimes we didn't even notice. TV wasn't just some new thing that popped up and whatever. Television, according to McLuhan, actually changed the way we think about information as a culture because now we're judging things based on images rather than on information. It's also worth noting that television induces alpha brain waves, which are tantamount to a light sleep or what you might call hypersuggestive hypnotic state. But conversation for another time. Anyway, I bring up McLuhan because that's essentially what my conversation you're about to hear with Kevin is based on, only we're not talking about the 60s, we're talking about the ancient world. Specifically, I, Socrates' role in introducing a brand new medium into ancient Greece, and in effect, changing, in fact, setting the course of European history forever. But I'll save that story for the episode itself. So be sure to check out Kevin's work and support him at unityofthepolis.com, and also check my stuff out at storyofnowhere.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Socrates borrowed George's notion of rhetoric as the power to create meaning, the creation of meaning, not just the articulation of meaning. He borrowed the notion of rhetoric as a power to create meaning and applied it to the public task of constituting the polis 
as an integrated community, an indissolvable single entity with tangible needs and identifiable desires. His writings created a sense of unequivocal interdependence between citizenry and the citizen, gave a new life to the old maxim of what is good for the polis is good for the individual. Once the crafting power of discourse was given over to the task of creating and sustaining an illusion of a unified polis, rhetorical education could be formulated as an instruction in the process of discerning and advocating the common welfare. The rhetoric could be re-articulated as the art of deliberating publicly the possibilities for the polis. In Isocrates' reformulation and re-articulation of Protagoras and Georges' vision in versions of rhetoric, public speaking became tantamount to speaking for the polis. Speaking for the polis became synonymous with the act and creating of sustaining the illusion of unity. The act and creating and sustaining the illusion of unity. Hello, everybody. My name is Kevin Cole, and today we're joined by Daniel McCarthy. Daniel is an author, writer, and researcher, and his work can be found at storyofnowhere.com. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Kevin. Today we're going to be discussing the realm of Isocrates, which I hope will be a two or three part series in which we break down the legacy and history of Isocrates, one of the Attic orators from ancient Greece, and his legacy of the liberal arts education system, as well as the different mediums of print media that he used to proliferate his messages and maintain communities. If you would like to support my historical research and future productions of UOP Media and the Ominous Continuity Podcast, please consider checking out my website at unityofthepolis.com, and you can support me directly with exclusive content at patreon.com slash uopmedia. This episode is dedicated to the life and memory of my friend John Taylor Gatto, whose birthday would have been last week, and without whom this podcast would not exist. Without further ado, this is The Ominous Continuity, Episode 8. The article that we decided to center this discussion around today was by Chuck Marsh of the University of Kansas Communications Department, and it's titled Isocrates and the Rhetorical Creation of Europe, the Medium as the Message. What I'd like to do first, though, is just to give a little bit of a background on Isocrates and who he was, some of his accomplishments, just to uh, kind of prime the pump here for our later discussion. Isocrates lived from 436 to 338 BC, and he was known as a sophist who was a formalizer of the liberal arts system from which the trivium and the quadrivium were later derived in the Middle Ages. Isocrates had believed in government by a natural aristocracy, and he saw monarchy, oligarchy, and democracy as all compatible systems of government as long as they could be managed properly by an educated and philosophically sophisticated elite. And that comes from Isocrates and civic education. He created what is known as the Enchiclios Paideia, or the Inner Circle Education, also known as an Ordinary Education. This was general knowledge, or a circular learning, how to read and write, and how to speak, how to articulate yourself. This was a closed system that was meant to achieve a kind of domestic harmony for the polis, or the city-state, or the polity. You're going to hear these words a lot today. And achieve a kind of common purpose like building up a political unity to combat the outside states like the Persian Empire, those that they viewed as barbarians. He believed it was impossible to govern horses or dogs or anything else well unless one pleases those one is supposed to be taken care of. And that is from Isocrates' Ad Nicolum, or his essay on kingship. Included as one of the Attic orators, Isocrates is listed in the Alexandrian Canon of Ten by Aristophanes and Aristarchus, both the librarians of Alexandria. More and more, the Hellenistic elite looked towards Isocrates as a model for training orators. 
then he became one of the preeminent educators of Greece six years before Plato had even opened his school. And it is because of Isocrates that Plato, you know, sees a, a power in preeminence in the education of the young. He just takes a different track. And we're going to talk a little bit about the oratorical and philosophical underpinnings of the liberal arts tradition and where there may be some kind of a split that took place throughout history. Isocrates viewed uh, philosophy itself as the power of conjecture, as opposed to the power of certainty. Conjecture is achieved using oratory and rhetoric. He's one of the first educators to put forth performance as a method or an indicator of progress. I think I'll, I'll pass it off to Daniel and see what did you find uh, in, in learning about Isocrates kind of on a preliminary level? The first thing I think that really jumped out at me is how unknown this guy really is. He's a name that I am somewhat familiar with, uh, having studied the pre-Socratic philosophers. Although, I mean, even that, he's not really pre-Socratic. He's contemporary with Socrates, and yet he's often just kind of lumped in with this whole group of other philosophers. And the reason I'm bringing that up as important is because pre-Socratic philosophers tended to be more concerned with the what was called natural philosophy, what we would now call science. And uh, of course, Socrates, not I Socrates, but the famous Socrates was even accused of being one of these scientists at his trial. That was one of the reasons the Athenians didn't like him. And he had to clarify that uh, he was not a scientist. He was more concerned with ethics and proper conduct. And what's interesting is that I Socrates uh, similarly seems to be more concerned with how people conduct themselves individually and within the context of their larger community than he was with, you know, what the sun is made out of or how round the earth happens to be. So I Socrates, like Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, from my reading, seems to fall outside of what the standard of Greek philosophy had been, which was uh, concerned with uh, science. He's concerned with ethics. Uh, so I think that um, what I really take away from Isocrates and uh, who he is, is mostly from what was conveyed in this paper that we're going to be talking about, because I hadn't really read all that much about Isocrates in the past. That's my own blindness, I suppose, but I just kind of missed him, unfortunately. And so I'm really happy to be here to do this and take the opportunity to learn more about him because I never realized, and I think most people don't realize, just how central this guy is to our history. And of course, we don't, we hardly know who he is. So a couple of things that did jump out about him to me biographically was that uh, according to this paper, of all of the classical works of ancient Greek, his to Nicocles was, according to James Muir, who's cited in this paper, this was the first Greek text to be translated into English, which I would have never in a million years guessed that. I would have said, oh, the Republic or something, right? But no, it's this dude, Isocrates. And so that right off the bat gives me this idea that, okay, somebody knows how important this guy is. Why did they choose him first? And then, of course, it turns out, and this... You know, not to get too specific in the paper right now, but according to Isocrates himself, he's kind of the first quote unquote writer. You know, we think of journalists and authors now as commonplace and, you know, everyone's got a blog or whatever these days, but Isocrates is really the first guy who calls himself, what is it, a graphine, a writer. And he writes in these 
what we would now consider to be totally commonplace, the linear fashion of here's an argument and here's my presentation of the evidence on it. Let's make a point, you know, beginning, middle, end. Whereas up to that point, the media that had pervaded the ancient world was largely um, oral, which meant that stories and information about the world and about history tended to be conveyed in allegorical terms. And we all understand this and it makes sense. It's not, I don't want to fall into this trap that modern people often fall into of kind of dismissing ancient myth and religion as stupid and superstitious. Like, no, they, you know, they had a perfectly reasonable, given their scope of understanding, explanation for why thunder happens and, and all this jazz. It's all very imagistic and it's all very human. And of course, poetry and allegory are very handy mnemonic devices. Uh, so it's really easy to remember these long myths. And what Isocrates does is he conveys, he, he, has, he can remove, because he's using the medium of writing, he can remove that necessary mysticism that uh, comes with the story, and he can just present points in their pure abstract forms. So I know maybe that's even getting a little ahead of where we should be at this point in the show, but I think that that information is important to include even in this biographical introduction to this character, because I really want people to understand just how important it is that the way he's going to present his information is going to be really the focus of this presentation. And so if it winds up that we repeat ourselves on that point, I don't think that's a bad thing. That you know. No, I think you set that up uh, very well. I've read actually several accounts that Isocrates was kind of a shy speaker, that he didn't like to get out and be the one delivering his message. So his developing of this technique of writing and transcribing and creating copies of he did this for a reason because it created a kind of spatio-temporal consciousness shift from his first person discussion of these ideas to somebody reading it themselves and internalizing it. And it allowed him also to edit and specifically set up a chronology for the ways in which he wanted his ideas to be digested. And I think that this plays a major role in the concept of Panhellenism. And Panhellenism, basically just referring to a concept surrounding the attempts at unity or attempts at political unification of the Greek peoples. And, and I think this is going to be foreshadowing for some later episodes where we discuss how different unions were being used in order to create a symbiosis amongst uh, polities that would seem to be disparate on a lot of different ideas, but trying to find common ground amongst different subjects or or different ideas minutely. So just a little bit of background on this, uh, Panhellenism as a political union, Isocrates himself, according to the article, used the terms European or Europe's 13 times across many of his essays. And as you mentioned, this new medium that he created of, quote, written documents or sigramata um, were just a, a game changer in political and historical thought. The importance of this as a new rhetorical media goes as far as, according to this article, the creation of Europe itself. Now, when Isocrates is referring to Europe, he's mostly referring to central Greece or his immediate surroundings, but it was also an attempt to 
have a way to create cardinal and ordinal elements outside of the main city-state to its larger polities, to to try to bring in people to the fold or create a community amongst what would be different cultures the further you get outside of Greece, much like is true today with, with cities in, in the United States or around the world. You find that the ubiquity that is kind of modeled in mainstream technology and media is maybe not that when you get on the ground. Uh, there's a lot of particularity amongst different religions and, and at this time as well. So this concept of Pan-Hellenism is very important because it, it ties in the concept of the Logos as a way of maintaining a polity. So if you could get people to achieve a certain kind of ethical or moral or virtuous standard, then you would have a greater chance that those people are going to enact those standards in their public life. Antidosis by Isocrates, one of his most popular works, and Nicocles both posit the speech logos as a civil and political unifier. And so for Isocrates, his logos was based on the results of an oratorically delivered speech or the way in which one interprets a written text. His making of these transportable, uh, as Marsh discusses them, transportable text, this would allow for massive republication and distribution and, and lead to those community building powers, especially when it's a new medium. You think about like when new technologies come out now and the ways in which we are transfixed to them. But it also opens up an idea that other people can do this. What did you find on, on the logos of Isocrates and Panhellenism? So I, I do quickly want to comment on just the nature of text uh, and then get into how it relates to Panhellenism. In a kind of crude way of speaking, the book or the, the written document of Isocrates is like the original iPod in that it gives people for the first time a pause button, a rewind button, and a fast forward button, which, you know, you can go to the marketplace and you can hear a orator speaking or whatever, and that's all well and good, but then he leaves town, he's gone. And maybe you remember it, but, you know, obviously that has its problems. But when you have a document, you could read it and then you kind of glazed over that last paragraph so you can go back and read it again. It's a tremendous tool that gives people, as Marsh says in the article, you know, writing gives people the gift of time. It lets them contend with the text at their own pace again and again and again. But at the same time, a, a downside of this perhaps is that it limits the audience because obviously anyone can go and hear an orator speak and understand what he's saying. But back in these days, how many people could really read? And so they're kind of, this creates a, a, a class division, I suppose. But uh, regarding the Hellenic unity, uh, this is something that, according to the article, Isocrates is really driving home this idea of uniting the Greek, I presume Greek-speaking populations. I don't know if he specifically says it has to do with their language, but I, I presume it does, considering we're talking about writing. So he's, he's about uniting the Greek-speaking peoples uh, against the threat of the Persian Empire. And obviously, this is something that's going to be familiar to pretty much anybody from any time period, but I think it has special relevance to us today. But this isn't an entirely novel idea. 
there, the idea of Europe was around before Isocrates. He's just leveraging this old idea in a new and perhaps more sophisticated way. Uh, so I wanted to just address uh, two examples of people uh, talking about the idea of Europe and Hellenic unity. But yes, it's before Isocrates, but it's really not that much before him. We're talking like within a generation, we've got uh, first Herodotus, who's the very famous historian uh, who wrote the histories. Uh, that was, I want to say, around 450 BC, something like that. Herodotus, as a matter of fact, died when Isocrates was 11 years old. So there's slight overlap there. And this is what he has to say about Europe. He says, uh, this is in uh, yeah, his histories. He says, quote, but the boundaries of Europe are quite unknown. And there is not a man who can say whether any sea girds it round either on the north or on the east, while in length it undoubtedly extends as far as both the other two, that being the continent of Asia and what they called Libya, which is now Africa. For my part, I cannot conceive why three names and women's names especially should have ever been given to, track, to a tract which is in reality one nor why the Egyptian Nile and the Colchian Phasis, or according to others, the Miotonic Tenes and uh, Chimerian Ferry, should have been fixed upon for the boundary for the boundary lines. So what here he's describing is how essentially Europe, Asia, and Africa are one land mass, and yet traditionally we've divided them into these three continents, and he's trying to figure out why that is. And uh, so skipping down just a little bit, he says, According to the Greeks in general, Libya, again, that's Africa, was so-called after a certain Libya, a native woman, and Asia was named after the wife of Prometheus, the god, the god of knowledge. The Lydians, however, put in a claim to the latter name, which they declare was not derived from Asia, the wife of Prometheus, but from Asius, the son of Cotis and grandson of Manes, who also gave the name to the tribe Asius at Sardis. As for Europe, no one can say whether it is surrounded by the sea or not, neither it is known whence the name of Europe was derived, nor who gave it name, unless we say that Europe, Europe was so-called after the Tyrian Europa, uh, the Tyrian is Phoenician, uh, the goddess Europa, and before her time was nameless, like the other divisions. But it's certain that Europa was an Asiatic and never even set foot on the land which the Greeks now call Europe, only sailing from Phoenicia to Crete and from Crete to Lycia. However, let us quit these matters. <laughs> so he kind of wants to get off that subject. Um, but essentially what's to be gathered from this passage is that there's this mysterious tradition of Europe being called Europe. And no one really knows why. No one knows why it's called Europe. Nobody knows how far it extends in any direction. And so Isocrates is going to try to put cultural parameters on this. So for Herodotus, we're talking about something vague and ambiguous. And then Thucydides, who's another famous historian who wrote about the Peloponnesian War, he says that before the Trojan War, so this is like 1100 BC traditionally, there's no indication of any common action in Hellas, nor indeed of the universal prevalence of the name. On the contrary, before the time of Helen, son of Deucalion, who is the son of Prometheus, by the way, no such name existed, but the country went by the names of different, of different tribes, in particular the Pelasgian. 
It was not till Helen and his sons grew strong and Phytheotis and were invited as allies into the other cities that one by one they gradually acquired from the connection the name of Hellenes, though a long time elapsed before that name could fasten itself upon all. The best proof of this is furnished by Homer. Born long after the Trojan War, he nowhere calls all of them by that name, nor indeed any of them except the followers of Achilles from Phytheotis, who were the original Hellenes. And he goes on to list all the tribes and stuff. So let me just skip down real quick here. It appears before that the, the several Hellenic communities, comprising not only those who first acquired the name city by city, as they came to understand each other, but also those who assumed it afterwards as the name of the whole people, were before the Trojan War prevented by their want of strength and the absence of mutual intercourse from displaying any collective action. So in, I think my reading of this is embedded underneath this is, is language. We're talking about people being able to understand and communicate with each other economically. And if you read Homer, obviously you see exactly what, and this goes back to the importance of the medium, Homer's presenting in mythic terms the exact thing that Isocrates is presenting in nice narrative linear terms in, in a nice uh, document. He's talking about unity against a common enemy. It's just that one is oratory and mythical, and the other is written and more argued out. So I'll throw it back to you. Great points. And I, I wondered, did you find a common thread in that of pragmatic idealism behind the reasoning for doing so? Do you believe that Isocrates is using this as a, a conscious technology for unification? Whereas like you're, you're talking about how before these are orators and the message gets lost, they leave town, the accounts of it, you know, it's very much the, uh, the game of telephone you play as a kid, right? Like you, yeah. you tell somebody one thing and it goes around through eight or nine people and then it comes back and, and the interpretation is lost. Whereas with this written medium, you have something that is fixed, kind of a, a constitution of sorts, uh, something that you could use as an example to, for other people. Also, it seems to create that authoritative complex where you have a division of cultures. Some people that are just getting introduced to print written culture and, and learning. And then you have these others who are you know, known as, I, I believe they called Isocrates, uh, old man eloquent. He is specifically known throughout the classical education system for being somebody that was uh, very astute in these areas. Isocrates is one of the first to recognize that this needs to be systematized for different reasons. Whereas a, a lot of the uh, philosophy or philosophy at the time was based in a kind of abstract search for meaning and had a adherence to a, a particular statecraft. Like Socrates and Plato are very much in line with the need for a, a state and for a different type of caste system. And Isocrates was as well. But I think that he believed that it had to be buttressed by a ubiquitous ethical and moral set of guidelines, or that there had to be standards for reaching these types of unity. He very much praised different caste systems in his institutionalization of education. And his thought has been so important to educational and technological history, but neglected for a very long time. He believed that the rights of women and slaves were to be uh, kept down. He was against giving them rights. And he, he very much played up this dichotomy of the slave versus free or the civilized versus uncivilized culture. And this plays a role 
even today in our understanding of the two traditions of the liberal arts or what it is called later, the battle of the books, the idea of this war between the humanities and the sciences. Before we go any further, I'd like to read a passage from a source called Speaking for the Polis. And before we get too far away from kind of the medium of the message idea, I wanted to read this passage because I think it gives a great history and puts Isocrates within his time. Isocrates' rhetorical education put into practice Protagoras' vision of rhetoric as an art that could be infused with the demands of political life and could make students of rhetoric good citizens of the polis. Yet the turning of an outsider's vision into an Athenian reality proved to be infinitely more difficult than the mere implementation of a conception into practice. The Athens of Isocrates' time was qualitatively different from the Athens of Protagoras, which had witnessed and brought forth his conception of rhetoric. With the success of the democratic experiment in the fall of the Athenian Empire, the gap between the political equality and social inequality became more pronounced, and the polis ceased to be regarded as an integrated entity. To carry out Protagoras's educational project within the divided polis of the 4th century necessitated that the polis would need to be instituted once again as the common articulator of its citizens. This is what is later known as the res publica, or the public thing. This is the, the uh, institution that houses the collective interest. It was a task for Isocrates that turned George's conception of rhetoric into reality. Isocrates borrowed George's notion of rhetoric as the power to create meaning, the creation of meaning, not just the articulation of meaning. Borrowed the notion of rhetoric as a power to create meaning and applied it to the public task of constituting the polis as an integrated community, an indissolvable single entity with tangible needs and identifiable desires. His writings created a sense of unequivocal interdependence between citizenry and the citizen and gave a new life to the old maxim of what is good for the polis is good for the individual. Once the crafting power of discourse was given over to the task of creating and sustaining an illusion of a unified polis, rhetorical education could be formulated as an instruction in the process of discerning and advocating the common welfare. The rhetoric could be rearticulated as the art of deliberating publicly the possibilities for the polis. In Isocrates' reformulation and rearticulation of Protagoras and Georges's vision, in versions of rhetoric, public speaking became tantamount to speaking for the polis, and speaking for the polis became synonymous with the act and creating of sustaining the illusion of unity. The act and creating and sustaining the illusion of unity. An illusion given stability by narratives of communal values and shared commitments, credence by arguments with plausible solutions, and weight by the speaker's quality of character. Isocrates' writings gives us one of the final glimpses into the history of rhetoric of community as a unified collectivity, and perhaps the last successful deployment of the forces of fragmentation and the pressures of difference. It is a dream that can no longer be dreamed in the present era of nation-states, he says, an ideal that can no longer be attached to rhetoric. Nevertheless, the dream can still be activated in a local scene, and local efforts towards unification and a concerted action can learn a great deal from the Isocratean versions of rhetoric. For the act of speaking for the polis, as Isocrates put forth, may very well outlive the historical purpose it was given, and in the absence of a polis, may very well find new life in contemporary local struggles. In our times, speaking for the polis may still designate a way of speaking for the world that articulates speakers' and audiences' thoughts as social beings and discourse as the groundwork for binding individuals together in a potential community. In this way of speaking, the struggles for concerted action reach out to the history of the community 
who discursively crafted narratives that illuminate cultural limits and the possibilities of the political and ethical becoming of a community. So that's a lot to take in there, but I, I think it's very important to point out how the medium can be used as the message itself, how just having a unified, ubiquitous, and authoritative sounding vision can be used to convince others that you have actual authority. And it posits this question on where we get our allegiance to statecraft, to nation states, to tribal communities, to family arrangements, to church organizations that you're a part of. Uh, and it and it shows how a top-down rhetorical vision, especially given the absence of of critical thinking and a critical look at how one has been introduced to certain ideas, can affect your overall outlook. How one can kind of live in a mental divergence of somebody else's thinking if you're not taking a active role in it yourself. What do you think about these ideas? First of all, I think that that passage could probably be, I mean, you could spend literally lifetimes studying the ideas contained in there. So I'll try not to take up lifetimes uh, right here explaining what I thought. But as far as the medium and the message idea, what's really important uh, about this whole thing is to point out that medium being the message doesn't just mean like TV makes our intention spans shorter by its nature, as opposed to books making us smarter by their nature. Like, okay, sure, we can talk about that. And I happen to believe that TV might make our attention span shorter. But what's most important here is that the, the type of media being employed will actually affect the kind of political organization that a society not only will have, but that the society will deem acceptable and permissible, which is very important. You know, like the idea that uh, govern that you have to have the consent of the governed. That's true in a kind of brutalistic way in that so long as you're not revolting, ostensibly you're consenting to some degree or another. And so the rhetoric that's employed on these various media is going to pacify or justify the actions of the state or the corporation or the church or whatever it is to its constituent members. And uh, the the whole time you were reading that, the phrase that was just banging around in my head was body politic, right? The idea that the society is an organic being and we are cells and organs that serve the purpose of making this larger thing function for the greater good. Uh, I talk about this in my book, actually, and I print a picture in there of what I think is maybe the best image that encapsulates the idea of a body politic, which is the famous uh, front cover of Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, which is this big king with his beard and his body is made up of the citizens. It's, it's a fantastic image for conveying what this idea is. His body is literally the people. And at the head is the king, of course, head of state. So that's one thing that uh, I got from that that text that you just read. Boy, there's a lot more there. I mean, another thing similar to this whole idea of the medium affecting what kind of government you have, uh, to quote Plato in The Republic, he says that the type of music a, a, a people enjoy will directly affect the kind of laws they have. 
just kind of sounds like a weird thing until you remember, oh yeah, the sixties, you know, like that's a really good example of maybe, you know, what's the causal relationship can be debated. But the point is that when you observe shifts in cultural norms, as far as politics go, you will also observe these cultural artistic shifts and also transformations in media. So changing technology, uh, changing tones, that's always going to have something to do with the way that people organize. And that's Mm -hmm. all this is about organization. Um, There's a lot more to say on that, but I'll leave it at that for now if you want to move no, on. I think you you hit on something really great there. And I think, I wonder, do you, do you kind of feel like we're looking at the birth of the concept of uh, representation in a way, um, meaning that somebody else can speak for you and that kind of creates that body politic? Because if I'm just a laborer in the city and this guy's got all these verbose explanations for everything that's going around going on around me it's very easy for me to just adhere to the authoritative vision of of the day uh, especially if i'm somebody that's not a participant in that so it seems like it kind of kind of leads to the idea of speaking for other people you know like many people finding congruence or parallels with with his thoughts at the time and the point you made about about technology and how that relates to uh you know geopolitical ideas as well as towards maintaining a unity i mean you hit on that when you mention music it's a it becomes a political decision i mean how how many artists out there have had their careers quote ruined because they decided to take a political position on a specific idea i don't know whether it's like the dixie chicks or or roger waters you cut out a large amount of your, your fanship by giving away your political position sometimes. So it it creates a situation in which somebody is thinking beforehand of game planning a way about coming to a conclusion. So if he's trying to set up a system in which he can spread his text across a large swath of land in which people will be reading and thinking along the same lines, then he's bringing people into a larger conversation. It's almost like he's, you know, at, at the advent of kind of these uh, these technologies, he's creating some of the first think tanks, right? A insulated, you know, body politic with kind of a rings within rings kind of system based on your ability to participate within that culture. I mean, if you're somebody who's illiterate or if you're somebody who's learning to read or you're somebody who's considered a barbarian, your way towards representation or towards stature is to get involved in these larger conversations. And before we get back directly to the article, I just wanted to read a couple things just so I can make the dichotomy kind of clear. And I talk about a lot of this in my discussion with Richard Grove on the history of the trivium throughout our time and this concept of grammar, logic, and rhetoric as an analogical reasoning structure in which to buttress societies and create polities as opposed to one that was denoted to free one's mind or to have a leg up intellectually on on other people. The actual history goes through a oratorical tradition, which was more of this kind of pragmatic ideal. The medium is a message, yes, but whatever works also. It wasn't uh, necessary except for people to kind of hold ubiquitous ubiquitous ideas. Because you're making pretty grandiose claims. You're saying, I've started an educational system. I've got my own school here. We have a total education. We have everything in the world. 
figured out this is where you can go to get the most complete knowledge to become a virtuous person. And Isocrates wrote these fictional uh, exposés to to different kings and to uh, different rulers on how they could incorporate the liberal arts or the muses into their thought process. Because if they themselves could become more virtuous, they could see how this needed to be extended to a wider community to be modeled. And this is what you find in like modern politics as well, except when you get somebody who kind of throws a wrench in it and, and doesn't play the game of presenting themselves as a virtuous leader. But throughout the system of the, the liberal arts, and especially with Isocrates, these were being created as a way to keep out others. The other states surrounding Greece were always viewed kind of as piranha states that would come in and swallow it whole. And so this slave versus free dichotomy needed to be kept up because if you're going to have an insider in group culture, you need an outsider out group culture to make your other, you know, because it's through the otherization of others and through a kind of artificial ubiquity that you can create a strong culture. So the classical Greek idea of freedom, and this is taken from Werner Jaeger, who I have some disagreements with as to some of his conclusions on Isocrates, but I think he's one of the better out there. Uh, We're going to talk about in another episode about how educational history has largely been skewed in the direction of Plato and Aristotle. And this is a, a historical fallacy when you start looking into the history of the liberal arts education throughout medieval polities and the way that uh, Neoplatonism reincorporated Renaissance ideas and particular authoritative education, which is the lineage of Isocrates. But the classical Greek idea of freedom was a positive concept of the realm of political rights. It was based on the existence of slavery as a permanent institution, in fact, as the foundation of the liberty of the citizen body. The kindred word or world of the liberal describes the conduct appropriate to a free citizen, whether in generous speaking or in frank speaking, which would be improper in a slave, or in a gentlemanly way of life. The, quote, liberal arts are those which belong to liberal education, and it is the idea of paideia of the free citizen as opposed to the uncultured vulgarity of the unfree or the slave. So the primary meaning of free was not a slave. Also, I'm going to read from the American Academy for Liberal Education. It is said that the skills needed to be an effective citizen are so prominent in the Greek conceptions of liberal education, it's not too much of a stretch to translate the liberal arts as, quote, the skills of freedom. So Athens had this creative, democratic, and liberal education And if it was going to survive amongst all these piranha states on the ancient Mediterranean, you had to learn the history of these ideas. And and particularly, it was not meant for, you know, the average citizen. They weren't like this wasn't a mass education campaign to raise everybody up to the level of a builder. This was mainly to create a meritocracy amongst the elite and the rich and powerful as a way to impart a virtuous leadership that would sustain itself, a kind of whatever works, however we can keep this going. We recognize how rare it is to come together amongst ideas, but if we can come together amongst the the most minimum of ideas, maybe we can expand ourselves. And this otherization was key to that concept. 
So if we can get back a little bit in towards the uh, Marshall McLuhan side of this, I, I kind of did a chronological outline here. We went through the uh, the Isocratean versions of Logos, kind of touched on the medium of the message. The article states that Marshall McLuhan's famous dictum, the medium is the message, denotes the idea that a pervasive medium's cultural and neurological impacts far outweigh the importance of the content it conveys. And we discussed how writing as a medium helped to build these common cultures. And McLuhan himself said it's these writing mediums plus common cultures and the printing press that give birth to nationalism. And so writing, as we have covered quite thoroughly, became a technology to bolster pan-Hellenism. And it also affected many of the academic disciplines that he was instituting. You can see this in ethics and law and philosophy and medicine and countless others. Marsh covered the genesis of Europe and the barbarian uh, versus civilized dichotomy. This is kind of, you know, this has, I think, directly to do with what you read there and the whole idea of like the creation of polity and then how this plays to the, the dichotomy between master and slave or free and slave. But this also kind of is like a meta issue that has to do with just about all of, I think, what we're both interested in, ancient and modern. Um, I don't think that what somebody like Isocrates is doing when he becomes a writer and he writes about we need to unify as one people organically composed against this other kind of ragtag bunch of barbarians when he does that i don't know that he's it's he's really creating quote unquote anything from whole cloth what he's leaning on are natural human tendencies to be tribal so we're we are inclined to exclude the other and it's because disease exists and you know you it's just perfectly natural you trust people that you know and so you're a little more dubious of people you don't know. It's perfectly understandable. And so these projects to unify people, they're rooted in something that is natural. And this is important because I hear a lot of people who, you know, frankly, maybe aren't thinking so deeply about, quote unquote, conspiratorial stuff. They're just kind of looking for this overarching nefarious narrative. And you wind up hearing things like, you know, you know, for example, propaganda will create you know, desires for things we don't need or whatever. It's like, that's kind of true, but it's also an oversimplification. Uh, what Bernays talked about and what Jacques Ellul in his book, Propaganda and the Formation of Men's Attitudes, he says is, look, propaganda simply doesn't work unless you're basing it on something that already exists psychologically in humanity. And so when Bernays gets you to want to buy the car, he's not playing to anything new, he's associating it with your sexual desire or your desire to fit in. That's something that already exists very deeply. He's not creating anything. He's just leveraging what already exists. And so when Isocrates comes and he talks about, you know, we are united and they are other, he's leaning on something that's very real. And frankly, at a certain level is probably a good thing. So it's not like it's 100% bad. Uh, it's just how does it scale? That's the question. Because, you know, it's I think it's unavoidable that communities, which, of course, the root of that is communicate or commune. Uh, it has to do with language. 
communities, be they of 20 people or 20,000 people, they're always going to have to unite around certain principles, certain ideas, or else how could you say they're a community? They can't understand each other, or even if they can understand each other, they're at each other's throats because they disagree about fundamental things. So is this, so is this why we have the national anthem before sports I, events? I think that would be a, an example of leveraging that, uh, that uh, communal uh, urge that's within us our desire to be a part of a larger organic, genuinely organic community. People say, hey, people want to fit in. Well, let's see how big we can make this. And so if we can all rally around one linguistic thing, one logos, that is the national anthem or the Pledge of Allegiance or whatever, whatever it happens to be, um, if we can unite around that linguistic object, then we can get more people into the franchise. And that's so that whole project of creating an artificial unity is based on something that's natural and that's why it works. And that's the important thing is it's like what, what you and I are talking about here isn't like we shouldn't have the idea of organic communities or anything like that. It's like, no, 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 no. That idea gets bastardized and maybe the people don't mean to bastardize it. Maybe they think they're being perfectly fine. You know, I don't, did a Socrates think he was a, you know, mohaha evil kind of guy? Like probably not. And who knows? No, but- and I, I think you make a, a really great point there on viewing it in kind of a, a non-temporal manner. The thing that I think distinguishes I, I Socrates from Socrates and Plato and some of these other important figures is that Isocrates, within his rhetorical vision, recognized that we don't know the big answers, and he chose not to posit a cosmology to to feed that. What what he chose to do was to further the ability for a conversation for it to take place, but instituted the pragmatic ideal of a specific kind of learner, a specific kind of knower, a specific kind of being. So you're creating a educated person, a gentleman, an Oxford gentleman of sorts, or a, uh, and this is very much the same lineage because we're going to get into that, but I'm going to try not to use the words of the British empire at the moment. And we'll just stick with Isocrates, but it very much came from a purposeful trying to create a pragmatic ideal. And I think I see that a lot throughout Isocrates' writing. There was a notion of his thinking that was like, okay, there's way too much disparity going on here. He found himself, you know, Fichte, his his situation in Prussia very much mimics this unification project. And he came to a very similar conclusion, which is why I chose to start my research into the trivium this far back is because I keep seeing this throwing back to this polity creation idea tied to the liberal arts education. So it's not like he was sitting around trying to be uh, nefarious. He just thought he had better ideas in which to come about getting to some of the same goals Whereas like Plato and Socrates, both buttress the state, they both believe that everything should be, you know, in deference to the state. Ultimately, I Socrates felt that oratory was like this medium in between the state and it's in its most furthest region across polities that would allow them to, you know, to, to, to build upon. 
we've kind of hit the impact of writing and editing and revision. Like you said, and like Chuck Marsh says, allowing people to hit pause on the world and decide, hmm, if I had time, instead of having to give up and extemporaneously speak and maybe miss some of my main points, if I had time to sit down, maybe with a group of other people or maybe just myself and game plan how I would go about doing something, the importance of that strategy creation and second order cybernetics kind of look a uh, observer status of sorts where you're able to kind of view things from a third party point of view. Whereas, you know, in, in, in actual life, if we're all at the Agora and we don't have prepared remarks, we're going to get up there and we're going to, we're going to continue a conversation that's going on. Might be lack, maybe lacking direction, maybe later, like I do on a lot of podcasts, I'll, I'll come back and listen and be like, man, I really wish I had mentioned that one thing right there. You know, if I had been more prepared, if I had made an outline that allowed me to think ahead of time on a process in which I could get from point A to point B, there's a major importance in that from a, a, a worldview perspective. It's not, not to say that barbarian cultures or natives are not capable of this type of forethought and intellectual precision. It's that when you put something down into stone, when you put something down into papyrus or you, you create a record of this, you're playing a major role in the creation of historiography in general. And obviously, you know, I'll be the first to concede we we have came about much of this knowledge through bits and pieces over hundreds and hundreds of years. There are documents of all of these individuals that are still lost. Aristotle's work was missing for such a long period of time that the history of liberal education and the trivium is often attributed to him when the trivium itself was outside of the realm of Aristotle's concern. Now, of course, his version of logic gets picked up later in the 12th and 13th centuries and applied to the medieval universities at Bologna in France, and that plays a major role in the development of the thought going into the Enlightenment immensely. But to say that Sister Miriam Joseph or that some of these other writers, Dorothy Sayers, who have kind of created a nostalgia around liberal education as the way to become a free person kind of falls apart when you see that pragmatic idealism was the modus operandi. Isocrates had a agnostic understanding of how the world actually worked, whereas somebody like Plato is positing a system in which one can achieve perfection that mimics the beauty of the forms of things, which is, you know, for other episodes that we will have soon released. But I think really the impact of the new medium the ability to recite a text as opposed to the oral tradition really expanded what Marsh called the sphere of reception. And he held that uh, one of Isocrates' most important contributions to the history of rhetoric, as you said, was the gift of time, that ability to create a spatio-temporal consciousness shift. And this is something that several historians have discussed with relation to the polity creation of the British Commonwealth and the British Empire. This is something that runs key through the addresses to the German nations of Johann Fichte in Prussia that, that leads to the reorganization of nation states and the way you buttress nation states. I've talked a lot about how the British felt that they were hundreds of years behind in catching up to 
Russia and to Prussia and to the United States and how they have butcherist a national community that can spread across wide continents. John Robert Seeley was extremely impressed with how the Americans were able to create a federal system that made it to where people as far out as can be from the original colonies still had some kind of adherence or uh, unity with the American constitutions, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights. And what was it at the time that made that possible? It was somebody who, like Thomas Paine, had the words and the philosophy, but also had the printing press that made it possible for it to be distributed to that many people. Can you imagine if like common sense had been a flop? God, how different things would be. Um, It's also part of the technology of the American system itself that is so important is perhaps the reason people were able, people across, you know, this vast landmass were able to unite behind a central ideal was because that central ideal was decentralized. You know, it's like, okay, you can see how everyone could get behind that when it's saying basically you be you, like you do your regional thing and we'll do ours. And that's our central virtue. That's a lot easier to see people getting behind than, you know, some grandiose positivist statement about what the government should be, blah, blah, blah. And of course, we see problems when states try to do that. Um, I don't need to get, you know, okay, just look around. Um, But uh Oh boy, I wanted to. Oh, um, uh, the point about uh, the Isocrates and pra- uh, his pragmatism. Uh, pragmatism is essentially just saying, like, looking at the world, looking at nature, reality, saying, "All right, well, how does this work? Figure it out to the best of your ability, and then systematize it to be maximally efficient." I mean, is that a fair definition of pragmatism? I yes. Think? Yeah. Okay. So that said, um, the what what writing did to oratory the liberal system that isocrates birthed did the same to uh tribal initiation i would say and so what i mean by this is just as earlier we were saying that the orator you know he could come to town and do his thing it was generally contained in Uh, These mythic terms that make it accessible to regular people or relatable, you know, the weather is a dude and, you know, war and anger. These are people and you could know them and blah, blah, blah. It makes it easier. It makes it entertaining. It's great fun. Uh, All of these things, that's the nature of the oratory medium. But when writing comes along, you can now systematize and abstract what those symbols were representing because you can move this paragraph down here and put this one over here. And use that leverage that time you have as a writer, like you were saying, to really look ahead and make the best possible version of what you wanted to say. So it systematizes the transmission of knowledge. Now, that contained within those actual texts, not the medium, but the message of Isocrates is how can we create by looking at the actual reality of nature and how people interact with each other, how can we systematize? the organizational process that all human beings naturally undertake. I don't think he said it in those terms, but that's what he was doing. And so the liberal system that nowadays we know is grammar, logic, rhetoric, and then on into the quadrivium uh, in the Middle Ages, 
this wasn't simply like learn the grammar of a subject and then figure out how it logically fits together and then go and talk about it rhetorically. It was literally stages of development that you would pass through. And of course, today we see that tradition carried on in what we now call elementary school, but used to be grammar school, secondary school and on. Uh, the, the three-tiered structure of education is a systematized and in many ways sanitized, bastardized, and uh, massificated, if that's a word, turned into something for the masses that should be local version of what tribes would do as uh, rites of passage or rites of initiation. So you because that serves a purpose for the organic polity, right? If, if you're going to be a member, if you're going to be a Jew, then you undergo your mitzvah. If you're going to be, you know, take your pick. Any culture will have these kinds of things organically that fit within the structure of the thing they unite with. It's, it's a bringing somebody into the organic unity is a rite of initiation. The right. liberal arts system is exactly that. Only instead of being something that's reinforced by myths and like a kind of uh, phenomenological uh, connection to nature or your ancestors or whatever. It's connections to abstract ideas that for thousands of years have been transmitted through writing. Writing is the backbone of the West. And so our initiation rituals are centered around the abstract creatures that writing creates. So this all goes together at what, so again, the analogy is what writing did to oratory is what the liberal arts system did to rites of passage. I think. Yes. I, I think there's very much a, a part of the, the liberal arts system, especially as, as it evolved, it was like a initiatory kind of sequence. I wanted to hit on what you said specifically. What I would point to is that the grammar, logic, and rhetoric, these were just individual subjects amongst uh, Isocrates' time that people would come in to teach. There was no unified stratum of like, if you put this together, then it mimics the mind the perfect way to be able to, to uh, come about a process of reaching critical thinking or any of that. It was really an attempt to systematize many different arts that were around at the time. And, and so many different things are left out. And it's Isocrates who gives birth to this entire tradition through Varro, when there's 11 arts and he narrows it down to uh, nine and then to seven through uh, 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 Cicero, also through Bothius and uh, Martianus Capella, this entire tradition is, is an evolution in which they are constantly using these subject matters as vessels for actual text or historical writings. So like throughout the Middle Ages, when, when you would learn grammar, it was very common. You were learning the grammar of Donatus and the grammar of Priscian. So you would read their verbose, eloquent exposés and their stories, and you would use that as a model, an analogical model in which this is, quote, proper thinking. So truth was very much tied to the beauty and eloquence in which somebody could exposit these ideas rather than the necessary or underlying truth, truth the 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 actual facts it was the beauty and eloquence of the oratorical tradition or later the way it is written the eloquent style this is why this is why the trivium and the liberal arts education of course gives birth to concepts of literary theory within academic circles to to be able to look back on this and praise the aesthetic quality of something right Th this is what makes that and so john robert seeley when he decided that 
well, England had done too long of perpetuating the culture of Rome and Greece in their elite schooling. At Eton, kids learning Latin primarily uh, and Greek, the educational system kind of being a hierarchy that, that reaches out from the most educated to the least educated, often along you know rich and poor lines. Uh, but he said he wanted to use the trivium and the quadrivium, the liberal arts structure, as old bottles for new wine. So very much they are empty vessels that in modern times we can extrapolate with our knowledge of today and our, our knowledge of psychology that, hey, well, grammar at a basic level could be thought of as input. Logic could be thought of as, you know, uh, deduction and induction and trying to determine the truth of something or the basis of it or rhetoric, the way of expositing this information or creating a style in which you can get it out to people in a way that is most tenable. Like if I think about ahead of time, like would I use that word if I'm talking to these people, you know, like you're, you're kind of game planning. You're, 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 you have an insular truth of like, okay, here's my main goal. And my outside goal is if I use this buzzword in front of this crowd, then they're either going to go wild or they're going to be upset. And so that forethought, that preconception of what is and what isn't great, the Mortimer Adlerization of history, you know, the first time that's ever been used that way. But like, you know, where he says there's no black people that wrote any good books, you know, I, he's a POS for saying something like that. You'd have to have a, a, a whole nother discussion about the lineage and peopling of, of Africa and the uh, race and uh, ethnicity of many of the people that he is, in fact, himself paying homage to, to be able to make such an erroneous statement. So it's just about what you include, you know, like if I'm teaching somebody the history of, of uh, the internet and I leave off bulletin board systems and prodigy and uh, these other things. And I just say, no, it just came from whirlwind and cybernetics and there were never a community-based system of it. Then I could just like, I could, I can mislead somebody. I can lead by, by neglecting aspects purposely. And that's the part where I, I think that I totally agree with you that, you know, I don't think Isocrates was thinking about it in a, uh, in the same kind of like, like he's doing something nefarious as much as there was a need for uh, this to happen. Uh, you know, people make the same arguments now living on the border with Mexico. You know, we need a wall. Sure. We need this. We can't have a civilization if people can't speak our language. And, and so there's a common thread in which there's a posited in-group, America. Some people think that the national language of, of America is English and that everybody, if you come here, should just learn English. If you don't know English, then you don't know our society and culture. Whereas I think a lot of what buttressed the national unity here in the United States as divorced from the rest of all of history was that it wasn't based on this pragmatic ideal of an empire. It was based on first principles derived from a closer look at the problem and trying to find a unifying factor amongst them. And I don't think that's entirely different than what Isocrates was doing, but I think that it's much more sophisticated when you're making direct arguments against somebody's abuses. Whereas from what we know and the historical interpretations, it was the uncultured uh, barbarians over there that are going to come take all of our stuff and be able to perpetuate their unity. We see that that's largely what happened through its merger with Christianity and et cetera. One of the articles that I'd really like to discuss next time 
is our history of educational philosophy mostly wrong? The Case of Isocrates by James R. Muir. And this discusses the different accounts of educational philosophy. And it will dovetail perfectly with the Neoplatonism and Freemasonry series we've been doing with Brett Vinod of the School Sucks Project. And I hope we can, you know, dive into these ideas a little deeper. Yeah, I, I absolutely want to continue this. I mean, there's so much here and it's, I love ancient stuff just as much as I, maybe not just as much as I like the modern history, but I really do like it. And I think that digging into Isocrates and the subject of Hellenic unity that becomes, that morphs into this idea of European unity and like finding this lineage going all the way back to this guy that has relevance to us today is so enlightening, not just when it comes to modern stuff, but it's also filling out some gaps in my own understanding of the ancient world. Because, you know, you mentioned um, Mortimer Adler and the great books and all that stuff and how limited that uh, framework is. I mean, for God's sake, it it literally assumes within itself that like books are the great medium. Now, oh, they are great. You know, I wouldn't say that books are not great. I, they're, they make uh, historical transmission possible, uh, certainly in oratory tradition. Some people say like, oh, they can survive for X amount of years. Okay, maybe, but I haven't seen that proven. I just know that books, even though, of course, they can be tampered with and destroyed and whatnot, uh, they are a great medium for preserving history. And so I, I get why somebody would want to compile a set of, you know, the great books, but implicit within that is this limitation. Uh, so that being said, I have undertaken to actually go through the great book set uh, with a group of people and we're reading right now. We just started Plato. Uh, so, which means we've read Herodotus, Thucydides and all of this other stuff, but I'm, sh I'm making sure in my group, to fill in a lot of these gaps that uh, Mortimer Adler and his ilk left out. So we did read pre-Socratics and we had conversations about pre-Socratics and all this kind of stuff to get out of the, because if you look at the original 54 volumes of the great book set that they made, it is very much like going some, it's going to a certain kind of state. I don't think there's a mistake that in the American, the very thin American volume that they have in there, Tom Paine ain't in there. Neither are the anti-federalist papers, just the federalist paper, you know, so there's a very obvious um, push or, you know, there's no Bastiat or, or yeah. a lot yeah. of these counter anyway, yeah, not to get too far down that line, but. Um, no, that's, that's an area yeah. I'd love to discuss more because mm -hmm. when you really look into the lineage of the great books of the Western world, they wouldn't exist without Nicholas Marie Butler, who was the president of the Pilgrim Society, who was running Columbia University, that instituted the program that gave birth to it. You know, Mortimer Adler wouldn't exist in the capacity that he did as the creator of the great books of the Western world had he not become a student of John Erskine at the University of Columbia, who was put there by uh, Nicholas Marie Butler as part of this reintroduction of classical education into the United States. This was the ideal of the transnational elite at that time, a foreshadowing of something down the road that we can discuss. But there was a purposeful reasoning for introducing the great books of the Western world the way they did in the United States, which was buttressed by the foreign policy think tanks of the Aspen Institute, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the Commonwealth Club of America, the different appendant organizations underneath the CFR, uh, educational councils, 
they were using the great books as far back as Thomas Davidson and the Fellowship of the New Life to educate people at the settlement houses in New York, where the, the settlement movement out of the 1800s, bringing people over from Europe. The common problem that I think is relevant to this discussion the most is that in the United States, with the system of immigration that we had, especially during the settlement movement, this is the problem they were trying to tackle at the time, was that we have people that are uh, foreign to to uh, American culture, people that are foreign to American ideals. They do not speak English, and they're now living in the United States. And we need to figure out a adult education system to bring them up to speed on what it means to be an American or what it means to have an interface with these great ideas. And so the conception of the greats or this constant looking back on history, the the compilation of the hundred greatest authors, these are attempts at a specific kind of polity creation. And that's why Mortimer Adler had his mind blown when he was in John Erskine's class. And one of the fathers or Jesuits that he was discussing was positing something that led him to understand how metalogical arguments exist. To that point, Adler had a kind of naive conception of logic as being one underlying logic that was the truth. But when he understood that if you replace the grammatical content, the input with other things, you could arrive at other conclusions. So there was something outside of a ubiquitous culture that allowed people to create insular cultures within it. And this goes towards the cardinal and ordinal elements of a story where you have an ordinal uh, or an order that creates the cardinal elements, which within the Roman Catholic Church are actual cardinals that would go out and proselytize the Christian uh, belief system. But it's an organizational structure that I think Isocrates gives birth to in a lot of ways. I'd say that within a very limited understanding of our historical knowledge of Western culture, our you know constant cultural leanings towards that being the end-all, be-all of the highest of civilization. There's a conception of, of looking at these ideas uh, in which you can still recognize that somebody who has gone this same path throughout history has things that we can learn from them. There's an artificial logic that exists, which is outside of one's natural logic. James Madison posited logic as just being something that's inherent and intrinsic to every human being. And I firmly believe that is the case. And if and if it's not the case, pretending it's the case is the way towards freedom. Uh, you know, like if you want to be the kind of person that believes that you're just a mechanical automaton, you can do that. We live in a country where you can you can see yourself as part of a system and that that everything that you've ever thought is just an input. Uh, output processing mechanism and that that you don't have any original thought because it's all tied to the culture in which taught it to you this kind of chicken and the egg uh idea of where where do ideas come from where do you get uh originality what is uh intrinsically yours these are all the conversations of isocrates there would be no intellectual property argument without isocrates that is how you create cultures. You allow, you create a cardinal and ordinal situation in which the cardinals are able to spin their own story. And if they can spin their own story, they can create a unity that is underneath the grand design of the building itself. And the building is your central organizational theme. 
So yeah. I really look forward to discussing our next uh, foray into Isocrates and maybe have one more after that before tackling some of the lineage of the educational system through the Middle Ages and on to the Renaissance. So uh, thank you so much for joining me. If you have anything else you'd like to add. Yeah, I, thank you so much. I'm, I'm happy we're doing this. I look forward to keeping it going. We didn't even mention Charlemagne, so we're definitely going to have to do another one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and the, the Middle Ages is really where I think this is going to just kind of go crazy. We're really going to see the, the tradition of the liberal arts and the function of the liberal arts. All this, you know, when we're looking at the ancient times, it's you kind of got to get your microscope out and really start sifting through a lot of fragments and lost stuff and things that people just don't really know about because it's so long ago. But once we get into the Middle Ages, the legacy and function of these this liberal system is really going to become apparent. So I look forward to looking at where Isocrates' ideas went. And um, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun ride. Uh, we're gonna see the nuance come to bear, uh, like you were talking about inherent rationality existing. This is something that one of the foremost proponents of the trivium education in the Middle Ages also believed in. John of Salisbury, who wrote Metalogicon back in like the 1190s, he argued that there was an innate, like like you said, quote unquote, trivium method that we have. He said it was perception, memory, and reason. Like these things exist within us and he laid it out. So we're going to see kind of, it's not just black and white, either you believe this or that. <laughs> there's there's going to be a, a synthesis between those two things. So I think that uh, as far as discussing the article in question, I think we pretty much nailed it and introducing Isocrates. I also think that we did a good job with that and I look forward to it again. Anyone listening, check out my website, storyofnowhere.com. That's where my stuff's at. I I look forward to the next one. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining me and be be sure to pick up Daniel's new book and check out uh, unityofthepolis.com. I do look forward to a further conversation with you regarding uh, the Metalogicon and John of Salisbury and this common thread that tackles the problem of universals. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Have a good day.